Hi, and welcome back to The Big Questions. As usual, I'm your host, Dylan Riddle. Now, I know at the end of the last episode, I promised that we were working on a series on debt, and we are. For the next two weeks, we're going to be releasing back-to-back conversations that my colleague and boss, President and CEO of the Institute of International Finance, Tim Adams, has had with central bank representatives from around the world. We're going to start with Philip Lane. He's the chief economist at the European Central Bank, and he sat down to speak with Tim at our 2020 IIF European Conference, which was live-streamed last week over the course of two days. Over the next 30 minutes, you'll hear the two discuss Europe's massive response to the COVID-19 pandemic and what the ECB is doing going forward. They'll also touch on the region's economic outlook and the process of normalizing economic activity moving forward past the lockdowns. With that, let's jump right into it. Here's Tim and Philip. As we've noted this morning, Europe has rolled out an incredibly large package to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic crisis, which is about the healthcare and a economic crisis. But now let's turn our attention to the European Central Bank, which has been a leading institution in the constellation of European institutions for many years now, including and especially since the famous comments in the summer of 2015, where former President Mario Draghi said, we'll do whatever it takes. Since that, and even in the past year, the ECB has been incredibly aggressive and creative and imaginative and just one of the leading lights across the continent. So it's my great pleasure today to introduce to you Dr. Philip Lane, who joined the European Central Bank as a member of the executive board in 2019, replacing my good friend Peter Prate, who will be up next. He's responsible for the Director for General Economics, the Director for General Monetary Policy, And as all of you know, before joining the ECB, he was the governor of the Central Bank of Ireland and for many years, a renowned economist, a long list of academic submissions. Dr. Lane, thank you for joining us here today. I know that you have a lot on your plate. So why don't we get to it? Just a few weeks ago, there was an assessment of the economic outlook that had a broad distribution ranging from severe to mild. Where do you think we are in that distribution? And what are you looking for to decide how severe this downturn may be? I don't say too much about the any update because we'll have our official projections next week. But across all of those scenarios, most of the variation is later on. The variation is essentially what will 2021 look like? Will the virus be contained? Will we have a second wave? How long will physical distancing measures be in place? What will be the reaction of households, which are saving a lot right now? What will be the reaction of investment? So I, you know, I think that the range of scenarios, of course, is variation this year. You know, I think it's, it's clear, by the way, that the absolute bottom was probably in April. So you know, we have this paradox now that the European economy is probably growing a little bit now from the very bottom, but of course, it's so far below where it was. Even a lot of recovery in these uh, weeks and months will still mean that average output in 2020 will be in that range that, that we talked about. So, you know, I think the unknowns are later on. We know uh, we're deeply below where we should be right now. And I think it's too early to tell in terms of the, the speed and the extent of the recovery. Wonderful. And, and, and you see the individual countries, are there convergence, divergence? How much distribution is there among and between the members? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the best guide to that is the European Commission uh, spring forecast that came out, where, where they have a lot of country detail in addition to their EU-level forecast. And maybe, you know, in the grand scheme of things, 
it, the common component is dominating. You know, it's a big shock for everyone. And uh, be, around that, really the two forces uh, determining the range are, number one is that those countries which are unlucky enough to be hit first and more severely in terms of the, the virus, uh, such as Italy, and then the structure of output. So of course, uh, when we think about those, those economies, for example, with a lot of tourism, uh, tourism is also going to take a big hit this year. So, you know, there, there is variation, um, but, you know, I think it's variation around a, a very negative mean. Um, variation is still interesting, but I think it's, it's really dominated by, by, by the overall aggregate uh, picture. So if you like, um, in terms of the, what's interesting about that is it, it makes, you know, as you mentioned, the, the policy response being uh, quite aggressive. But of course, when there's a common shock, you know, the case for the European institutions and the case for the ECB to respond is obvious when there's a common shock. Uh, whereas when you have divergence, where the, the mean is okay, that, that's much more pro problematic in terms of uh, managing macro policy. Whereas when it's common shock, the, the power of a common central bank, the power of uh, the joint EU institutions uh, come in, come in, come in, comes into play much more forcefully. One of the cornerstones of the measures that you have taken is the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program, PPP. Uh, and you said in your blog just a few weeks ago, uh, will adjust instruments is warranted. This includes increasing its side and adjusting its composition as much as necessary for as long as needed. I guess your own uh, version of whatever it takes. How do you judge this uh, program and, and how do you, what are you looking for to possibly make changes to it in the future? So really, at the, there's really two broad roles for, for the test. And in the same way, I think, for every central bank, the central monetary policy is playing two roles at the moment. One is, given the big recessionary impulse, you want an accommodative monetary policy. So to, you know, and obviously as uh, central banks have brought the policy rate somewhere in the neighborhood of the lower bound, uh, then uh, at the margin, most of the monetary accommodation is going to come, is going to come from asset purchase. So that's part of it, is just to add uh, monetary accommodation in order to keep inflation on, on a reasonable trajectory uh, towards its medium-term aim. And then the second is market stabilization. And because what we saw in, in those, uh, that middle part of March was a lot of market pressure. And again, that was global in many ways. We also had it in the, in the dollar market. Uh, and so, you know, I think that does need it as well. And the flexibility comes in, in terms of, um, of course, with uh, a kind of interesting uh, financial system in Europe, it's not as unified as the uh, US financial system. Then of course, uh, when you have a single currency, uh, when the capacity of investors to substitute quite easily across different uh, geographies is there, then, then uh, one dimension of flexibility is geographical, Another is between sovereign and corporate, because there was also strains in the corporate bond market and the commercial paper market. So one of the innovations for the ECB was to enter the commercial paper market. So, you know, I think it's um, the design of PEP, it turns out, has been helpful to have this kind of single pot where, where the use of that pot uh, can be reallocated in a very general way 
depending on, on the, the kind of strains that are evident. And of course, the, the announced effect was quite powerful. There were questions in the first half of March about uh, essentially what would be the role of the ECB under these conditions. And the, the design of a flexible program provided uh, very quickly a lot of reassurance that just like every other central bank in the world, uh, we know we cannot deliver price stability if we have uh, markets that are basically unstable. So it's a precondition for our primary mandate to make sure that uh, markets are able to operate in, in a kind of a, a stable manner without worrying about uh, tail events, you know, such as that loss of liquidity uh, and so on. I know the semi-annual financial stability report will be out maybe in a, just in a few minutes. Five minutes. Five minutes. Yeah, so I, I won't ask you to front run that, but do you feel comfortable with uh, the market uh, fragility that we saw earlier? Do you feel that that's become quiescent, sufficient such that you can focus on other aspects? Are you, are you comforted by where you are? So clearly, uh, there's been a significant uh, uh, recovery from the intense strains that were there in the second week of March. Uh, so from that perspective, it is a lot more stable than then. But I think um, anyone who's looking at the world economy, anyone looking at the high level of uncertainty in relation to the severity and duration of uh, the challenges in containing the virus means, uh, you know, financial spirit reports focus on what-if scenarios. They don't, you know, in our module policy, we have a central projection. Uh, of course, we look at, at the downside as well. But the tails, obviously there's elevated tail risk everywhere at the moment. So, um, you know, the, uh, all dimensions of central banks, the monetary policy, the kind of financial stability assessment, uh, everything, everyone is uh, hyper-focused now on those different dimensions. Uh, as you know, global debt levels are at a historic uh, level. Our own global debt monitor uh, just out recently noted that uh, 232% of GDP and rising. The OECD just came out with their report a few days ago, which was headline grabbing 17 trillion in additional debt for the OECD countries. Uh, but many uh, economists have said that debt doesn't matter now. We should be doing whatever it takes in order to restore growth. How do you see the debt debate? Does debt matter? And are you worried about the excessive levels of debt that we, that we saw occurring even pre-crisis? So, so uh, yeah, you, you, you worked in that phrase, excessive level of debt at the end of, of your... Uh, so, so the big question is, even uh, going back over the last decade, under the counterfactual where uh, the same amount of debt were, were not issued. So, of course, we can always lament, why don't, uh, why don't we have uh, financial systems and wider institutional frameworks which promote equity financing? But in the absence of kind of removing the bias towards death that, that does exist, you know, in many uh, places, you know, to me, the, the interesting question is, would the world look be more stable? Would the world uh, look better uh, without uh, all of this death have been issued? Because, I mean, it was, you know, um, I think we have to take that kind of macro view is, of course, you can come up with excessive death scenarios. Uh, you can come up with a misgoverned uh, bank, you can come up with a badly uh, run country, you can come up with all sorts of scenarios which do lead to excessive debt. Uh, 
but you also have to take take the other view, which is as right now, I think there's a, the as you say, the economic consensus is there needs to be a, an aggressive fiscal reform to the current situation. Uh, but I would join in the the uh, view I think of, of uh, every everyone who looks at this, which is okay, uh, and also uh, not to lose one's nerve too quickly about the world of public debt, but also to appreciate that life can change, the interest rate environment can change. So, so the uh, previous episodes of low interest rates. Um, quite often, it was not predicted that there would be a reversal in that situation. So reversals can happen. So we do have to, um, uh, I think, allow for that. And I think uh, uh, everyone involved, uh, national governments, uh, investors, everyone does have to recognize um, that if, uh, I think there's good cases or good narratives which will keep interest rates quite low for a long time. Uh, but there are kind of uh, scenarios where, where, where that goes into reverse. Now, by the way, there is a kind of, uh, you also have to keep track of some reasons why interest rates may, may go up would be good news stories because right. essentially uh, the world economy is going more quickly. Uh, there's rising investment demand uh, and so on. There's other good news stories where you'll get less scared. So the amount of precaution savings goes down. So, you know, I don't think uh, the level of the interest rate is a, uh, unique indicator. You, you always have to assess that. And in the same way with the debt situation, you do have to assess the, the, the configuration. So by and large, in many economies now, we enter this crisis with current account balances, you know, in, in the, uh, much smaller than these two. Okay, within Europe, there's individual countries with big surpluses, but we don't have a, a group of large deficit economies. Compared to world GDP, the large deficit economy is, is the US. Right. Uh, but we, do, we don't have that combination <laughs> of a twin, twin debt or twin deficit of a high fiscal deficit and a high current account deficit. And when the, the debt is internal, uh, if you think of the euro area, you know, from a currency point of view, what matters is euro area. Um, if the surge in public debt is essentially matched by a surge in uh, household savings, then the debt service being is an internal transfer. Okay. It's not a it's not a macro leak problem which you would have if you had a, you know, this traditional emerging market crisis where you were making payments to foreign investors. When it's an internal transfer, and this is why Japan, of course, has been able to manage very high debt for a long time, that right. the macro dynamic is totally different. It's, it's still very interesting from a public finance point of view, but the macro dynamic is totally different than a situation where that there's an external gap because. Dr. Lee, one question from the audience is the following. How does the ECB make governments accountable for the support they are given? Is it a free lunch? So a question of uh, conditionality. So you made reference to Mario Draghi's uh, 2012, whatever it takes. It's very important to appreciate uh, that statement came after the agreement about the fiscal compact in Europe. So essentially, in the European context, uh, the major uh, fiscal discipline is coming through the, the European framework, which uh, has the European Commission, it has the Eurogroup, it has national fiscal framework. And uh, you know, if you look at the history of the last 10 years, uh, okay, there's a lot of uh, debate about the exact design of that fiscal framework. But by and large, 
uh, I think uh, there's been a, a lot of fiscal discipline in Europe. And, you know, I think having that European framework means that uh, the ECB can focus on monetary policy at, at knowing that there is a European framework to enforce, if you like, uh, official sector discipline. And of course, we also have in the European context uh, market discipline. Uh, we, we don't do monetary financing uh, and we have a lot of safeguards against that. So it's not the case, I think I, uh, it's not the case that, that uh, uh, we are somehow you know, subordinated to, to national government. And with this shock, I mean, I think many central bankers made this point. Uh, what's going on right now is such a massive shock. It's obvious this should be easy fiscal policy. It's obvious this should be accommodative monetary policy. But that does not mean there's some kind of a fiscal dominance or coordination. It's just a shock. Yeah, it calls for both policies to be quite accommodating. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, never let a crisis go to waste. And I think you mentioned Mario Draghi. Uh, he was at the Jackson Hole several years ago, and he said, look, the, the, we'll do whatever it takes as a bridging. And it's a bridging, but we also need structural reform. Is this a, an opportune time in this crisis to talk about structural reform and as a Green New Deal, or pick your deal, but is it, is it now an opportunity to do the structural reform that we've heard about for many years? Well, let me, first of all, uh, remind uh, everyone that uh, probably, you know, uh, there, were, there have been pretty big uh, reforms where the value is now paying off. So the super, single supervisory mechanism, having a banking union, having a single supervisor, and then uh, more broadly across Europe with the EBA and so on, for example, has allowed a pretty big supervisory reform. And that supervisory response, I think, is quite important in, in uh, ensuring that the credit system can uh, remain quite stable. Uh, we have the ESM. So, of course, there's a lot of debate about the exact design of the uh, proportionate credit line. But I think that's been important. Uh, again, the, having the European stability mechanism is very important in managing a fiscal tail risk. So we do have already the value of these institutions kicking in. But, you know, I suppose your question is what's next and what, what is more? And then uh, what, what we've seen is uh, two phases now. We, we have the uh, response, the initial response to the crisis in terms of the EIB program. I've mentioned the ESM and then the, the Sure program, all of which are helpful and valuable. And now the, the kind of immediate issue is the design of a recovery fund. So all of this is showing that on top of the baseline in, in the Euro European Union of national fiscal responses, and a lot can remain uh, possible at the national level, uh, we are seeing more and more uh, different versions of a, a degree more European fiscal union, which again, it's always been the case that the, the narrative is for, for small shock, national fiscal policy can handle it. You can borrow and lend over cycle, you can use the automatic stabilizers. But for large shock, you know, there's a special value to containing the tail risk to joint action. And we're seeing a lot of it uh, right now. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I think uh, it, it, you know, it is, as you say, until the situation presents itself and, and kind of say, okay, what exactly is needed, uh, it, it's always hard to, to kind of predict in advance how much is going to happen. But we're, we're seeing quite a lot happen this year. You mentioned the recovery program, the 
Franco-German announcement last week that still has to run through the bureaucracy, the commission, the council, the parliament. But is that a game changer? And does it change the way that you think about the trajectory of monetary policy, the shape and trajectory of monetary policy over the next uh, six months? Uh, we welcome. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt. And you, you saw what happened in, in financial conditions last week after the announcement. Uh, so, so we welcome it. Uh, you know, obviously, it requires the ongoing negotiation at the European Council and the different uh, formats. Uh, but, you know, it, it goes back to the, I mean, one thing more generally, I think we're finding uh, this year, not just in Europe, but globally, is, if you like, in this low interest rate world, the ability to, to capitalize, you know, so it's a relatively small amount of annual extra, you know, budget in the European Union context, uh, with low interest rates can capitalize on quite a lot of support. Right. So, you know, that's essentially, I think, the big... Uh, 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 event this year is that essentially the low interest rate world opens many doors. It does open many doors. Uh, and that, that's just one example. Of course, it's by design, it's specific to the crisis. It, it's relatively contained in terms of size. So, you know, at that level, it, it's very much an, a kind of specific response, um, which I think, of course, is much more likely at this point to gain a, a lot of consensus than some grand announcement of a permanent move to fiscal union. Another question from the audience. And apparently in a speech today, the governor of the Bank of France, I didn't see the speech, but I'm taking this uh, for its word. That's nice. It's said okay. that, that uh, he would uh, like to see an increase in the, um, the PEPP uh, only if ECB did not cling to the capital P. Uh, do you have a view about that? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, we still have a just over a week before the monetary policy meeting. So, uh, you know, we're still forming our own views and so on. But the, I mean, it goes back to I me. Mean, I think the, the basic point with, with the design of, of the PEP is the benchmark is the capital P. That's very important that we have a benchmark, which essentially means that monetary policy is operating across the whole year area. Because, uh, of course, different population sizes and so on. Uh, but equally, we did say with the flexibility, you know, that as needed, we can depart from that benchmark. And I think uh, Francois is basically making that point, it is that um, uh, the whole point of having flexibility is, if it's needed, is you can uh, deviate from the capital P. Uh, we're already doing it. Um, I think, um, uh, you know, how much we need to do depends on the state of the amount of market stress we see. So, you know, I, th I think it's very much a state contingent issue. Uh, but the message I think we try to convey in the announcement of PEP is uh, we're essentially goal oriented. We want to deliver an effective monetary policy. We want a transmission mechanism that works smoothly. And uh, depending on the market stress that, that, that we face, uh, having the flexibility uh, to move away from capital P is a very important uh, principle of the PEP program. And, uh, you know, I think it does improve the efficiency of monetary policy, which is, I think, the basic point he was making in, in those remarks last night. Uh, in a recent FSB report to the G20, uh, we saw that uh, Chairman Randy Quarles noted that globally there's been uh, over 800 different uh, policy programs. Obviously, central banks around the world have been central to 
the recovery and response. How do you gauge or judge international cooperation among you and your counterparts at other central banks? Is there anything missing, something you'd like to see different in the future? So, you know, I'm not so sure that the current situation is, if you like, a, the kind of a best test case for cooperation. Because going back, it's, it's a common shock, it's global, it's obvious everyone should be adopting accommodative policy. Uh, and uh, if you like, again, uh, the fact that uh, so many emerging markets in you know, the last uh, 15 years or so have, for example, have now got an operational local currency stock and debt market, which is, which is allowing them uh, to you know, have more flexibility in how they conduct policy to a degree. Uh, you know, we, I mean, it is quantitatively relevant now that emerging markets are able to do easing and there's positive spill, spillovers for us. So, so I, you know, I, I think it's, it's good news that essentially there's enough development in the emerging market uh, financial systems, their uh, monetary policy framework, that they are able to contribute to monetary easing. Uh, I think a lot has been learned from the last crisis. So maybe uh, some initiatives that took some effort last time can kind of kick into place pretty quickly now. For example, uh, uh, swap lines, uh, repo lines, all of that, you know, it is happening. More will happen, I'm sure. Uh, so at that kind of uh, mechanical level of cooperation, uh, the playbook has been written uh, already. Uh, and then in terms of um, all of the, because global shock, you know, I think we're all interested in learning from each other in terms of the state of our respective economies, and also, if you like, in terms of what works or what doesn't work with all of this uh, policy experimentation. So through all sorts of, uh, you know, official fora, through all sorts of bilateral networks, even uh, though, of course, it's, uh, you know, this kind of uh, remote uh, uh, online world is the world we live in for central bank cooperation these days. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, shared effort. And as you look across the global landscape, are there particular parts of the global economy that cause you concern? Do you, you know, do you have a, an assessment about the U.S. economy or the Chinese economy? Are there parts of the global economy that, are there are there bright spots where you could uh, take some solace? Well, the, you know, the timing of the, of the how the virus, uh, you know, moves around the world means, you know, we we do benefit, and you know, I'm sure the public health officials are also benefiting from learning as much as possible from, from China and the other Asian economy. So in the same way that you do see a significant recovery in the Chinese economy now, uh, but incomplete. You know, that does tell you at one level, uh, there, there is a pathway out of this, but the, the fact it's incomplete means also we know that, uh, you know, until all parts of the world economy are, are back on track, it does mean no part of the world economy can completely recover. So, so that interdependence is uh, fundamental, uh, but you know, I think it's also in terms of learning uh, the fact that we do see this uh, visible recovery in, in China is, is, I think, very important. Um, beyond that, you know, I think uh, there's lots of institutional details, differences in how the financial system works, how the social safety net works. That you know, I think. Uh, like-for-like -like comparisons of works, you know, are, are not too easy, but um, I think what's important is as far as possible in as many parts of the world economy as possible, 
the, the uh, policy responses there. Uh, yes, central banks, but central banks honestly are relatively minor compared to, to the fiscal response. Uh, we're just about out of time. Let me just close out with two questions that came in from the audience. Uh, one is uh, with production costs rising due to health, worker safety, and logistical issues, would we see prices rising as well? That's question one and two. As you could expect, a question about the uh, German constitutional court and how the ECB is currently viewing that uh, court decision. Okay, so I think on, on inflation and pricing, uh, we see a little bit of inflation and things like food, because of course, uh, but more broadly, I can imagine many firms who, may, who do face more costs. Uh, but of course, simultaneously, they face a much smaller customer base. Uh, the, the demand levels gone down. And uh, you know, the, the pricing strategy by which you try and get customers to swallow uh, a higher price, um, you know, probably compressed profit margins will be much more likely. So you know, we do think we don't rule out individual sectors being price increases. Uh, we're sufficiently humble about the longer-term uh, inflation outlook, but I think uh, all, most of the weight has to be on a lot, a lot of slack, a lot of compressed demand. So mostly, I think this is a, a you know a negative period for, for the inflation path. And uh, on the German course, you know, on the day of the announcement, we, we took note of it in our press yeah. release, and uh, just reminded everyone that uh, uh, we are undeterred in our pursuit of our uh, monetary policy. Yeah, that sounds great. That's a great way to end this conversation. Dr. Lane, thank you so much. We wish you all the best and we greatly appreciate your time today. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And I hope that you found that conversation as interesting as I did. As I mentioned, we're going to be back next week speaking with another central banker, this time managing director of the Monetary Authority of Singapore, Ravi Menon. He and Tim sat down to discuss Singapore's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So be sure to tune in. Once again, thank you to all of our guests, our producer here, Kate Sammer. And if you'd like to learn more about the IIF 2020 European Conference, you can head to our YouTube account if you search for the Institute of International Finance, and you'll be able to watch replays of all of the panels. You have a good week, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.